Welcome to this January edition of the Australia-New Zealand Women's Declaration International Webinar. My name is Janet Fraser and I'm a volunteer with the Feminist Legal Clinic in Exile. Our principal solicitor, Anna Kerr, doesn't want me to say that she's doing tech, uh, but she is also here doing things. I live and work on Darug and Gundungara Nara outside of Sydney. Wherever you're coming from this evening, we pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations unceded across this continent. Tonight we'll be dealing with Article 9, Protection of the Rights of the Child. Children should receive accurate information about human biology and reproduction and not gender stereotyping through their education. Children should not be subjected to the use of drugs and surgery for gender reassignment. And now I'd like to introduce our speakers. Sandra Pateau lives and works on Bir Bay country, northern New South Wales. She has worked as a clinical psychologist for almost 50 years. Her special area of clinical interest is sexuality, which has covered sexual problems, sexual orientation and gender nonconformity. She has always seen some transgender clients, but historically these were adult males who had been gender dysphoric since childhood. Some years ago, she became concerned about the sudden increase in adolescent females presenting with recent onset of gender dysphoria. In 2021, she did a podcast with the College of Clinical Psychologists of the Australian Psycho Psychological Society, outlining her concerns, and as a result, she was a target of a trans group for her transphobic views. Fortunately, the APS took the view that there are always diverse views about health policy and no action was taken against her. Once this was finalised, she became very focused on learning more about the impact of trans ideology in the broader community. She believes her most effective role is to start within the clinical arena, getting health professionals to wake up and see what is happening and hopefully in this way lessen the power of trans activists. She is a member of SEGM, the Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine. What's almost embarrassed to say it from my point of view, this time last year, only less than 12 months ago, I was only um, aware of issues within the clinical scene. Um, so I was seeing these young people as uh, in the introduction who just didn't fit with what I'd known over the years in terms of a, a normal, what I would call normal or uh, gender dysphoric pre presentation. Um, initially, when I started seeing these young people, I talked to a number of uh, psychiatrists and psychologists because I, I felt really at sea and I felt quite worried about um, uh, supporting them because often we were, as psychologists, we were asked to provide supporting letters to endocrinologists to support them going on to cross-sex hormones. We're talking about kids under the age of 16. I tend not to see very little children. Um, but I've become, you know, aware of the issues there. So initially, uh, when I first raised my concerns, um, of course, I did it in all innocence, you know, so naive. I was sitting with a group of people at a conference and just said, look, I've got these young women, I'm really, or young females, I'm really worried about them. And, of course, the whole thing blew up. I was transphobic. So that was probably two years ago, and then I still struggled on on my own. And eventually I came across Lisa Littman's um, work and, it was like, you know, this was amazing because, um, I mean, it proved it wasn't just me. 
So since then, um, basically what I've been doing is working within the APS as well as in terms of trying to um, get articles published, for example, in the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, so the two levels for me is working with health professionals and working with the public when I can. So what's happened within the APS, the, when, the, um, when the complaint came in, it really side you know, it hit me, hit me out of the blue. I just didn't anticipate it. And for a number of weeks, it was probably the most stressful period I've had in my entire career. I heard from colleagues in, in Sydney that, you know, the transgender community hated me and I was this evil woman. And then I heard from colleagues that some psychologists thought I was, you know, this terrible person. So it was really um, incredibly stressful until I got the final um, message from the APS, which in which they they supported me in, and I had no no um, nothing was done against me, and the and the transcript got nothing that they asked for. So um, since then, I've continued with the APS, trying to talk with other psychologists. I had a lot of emails from psychologists who were worried about the trans or the affirmative uh, approach, but none of them were game to to come out in the open because of what happened. I heard of people, you know, leaving their jobs because of the stress. So um, over time, when, I, when the article came out in the Sydney Morning Herald, that was another round of, you know, people contacting me, telling what a terrible person I was. Um, but finally, the interest group within the APS that was responsible for diverse bodies, sexualities and gender were uh, developing a new set of uh, guidelines, practice guidelines. And I was a silent member of the group and I got a copy of it. And so on the basis of getting that copy, I then wrote to the APS executive saying, if this um, goes through, you're putting the APS and other psychologists at risk of legal action, given what's been happening now in, in challenging the, the um, gender affirming policy. So as a result of that, the APS has now set up a task force, which is only just in the process of getting together, which will examine the APS position on uh, gender affirming care. So there are two avenues for me in also advocating or talking to people in the community. One of the things that I've realised, um, and probably a bit like me, that there's often a feel-good feeling attached to supporting trans rights. You know, the average person in the community is back where I was a year ago, only sort of thinks of, oh, these young people, have, you know, they're in the wrong body. And so I've made a point of, of talking to people in the broader about the broader issues to do with uh, trans uh, transgender people, and I think that's where we're going to find some shift as more and more people in the ordinary community start to to also disagree with school policy, for example. Um, the worrying thing about the approach to kids um, has been this sort of uh, underhand alienation of parents, where the psychologist will actively work with the child. Um, if the parents disagree with the diagnosis of transgender, um, the psychologist will still affirm the child. And to me, that's uh, that's one of the main issues that has to be addressed. Um, nothing should should be done with the child or for the child uh, without the permission of the parents. And the same thing's uh, been advocated in schools, that you can transition the child in school without the parent's permission. So that's kind of where I'm up to. I, I feel like in the last 12 months, I've crammed all this information in. It's a bit hard to sort of tease out the different strands. Uh, and what I've been doing in the last few days is actually putting together everything I've learned in the last 12 months and putting that as background to the task force. I'm not going to go on the task force because I just don't think I've got the energy, uh, but I'm certainly wanting to, um, to put input, have input, which will assist um, 
the APS to come up with probably a position very similar to the psychiatrists, although I would probably want it to go a little bit further than that. I don't know that it will, but I would like to. What made you first realise that transgenderism is a threat to children? It was actually, um, this is how naive I was. When I started to worry about what I was seeing in these young people, I looked at the APS website and I noticed that this person was a, a contributor. And I had this um, very optimistic view. I contacted him and said, hey, I'm a bit worried about the guidelines, you know, any chance of us working together? And that um, went into a very detailed email discussion um, where he sent me a link to his work with children um, when I watched his one-and-a-half-hour presentation, I was deeply concerned. He um, talked a lot about uh, trans people shouldn't have to prove they're trans, there shouldn't be any gatekeepers. I ended up, I ended the discussion by saying that he was a gatekeeper, he was just letting everybody through, and that was really the last contact I've had with him. But it's because of my naivety in contacting him and, and having quite a detailed discussion via email that I thought... I, it. It's just not right. This is dangerous. And, and when you look at the, the information about children, that most of them desist as they go through puberty, he was advocating affirming them, not necessarily uh, pub um, puberty blockers because these kids were quite young. Um, so, so it seemed to me that his approach was very much to corral young kids into this pathway. And, of course, we know that if they are put on puberty blockers, then there's pretty much 100% carryover rate into uh, cross-sex hormones. Um, so it, it just, I, I'm in a dilemma because I come from a background where I do accept that there is a, a condition called transgenderism. You know, there, there are people that appear to me to be truly transgender. But there, and, and if even using those words, truly trans, transgender is likely to get a lot of trouble for me. But they're very, very different to what I used to see in the past. You know, these these um, trans women that um, you know they would come along and they just wanted to live their lives quietly. There was none of this browbeating and acting out. Um, so, so I'm concerned about kids. I'm concerned about the access to the internet, that these young people that I saw, some of them were 14, 15, 16. Um, you know, I made the mistake of saying to one of my colleagues, it's like they've, you know, they're being influenced by the internet to decide that they're trans. And that uh, led to another huge argument. Uh, I had another clinical psychologist tell me that it was insulting to suggest that uh, these adolescent uh, particularly the females, could it, could it all be influenced by social factors and that I was ignorant and I was conflating being uh, gender dysphoria with um, eating disorders and how dare I do that. So, so my aims in protecting younger people is I think the only way we can do it is through the, the societies that are responsible for the individual health professionals, uh, for them to start setting down guidelines which if the person doesn't go along with, it puts them at risk of, of legal. I still think even now, I can't understand how these health professionals, I, I've talked to Anna, in fact, I meant to say that it was because of Anna that I started digging deeper because we had contact and initially I was kind of, oh, no, no, I can't see the problem. And as I got deeper and deeper into it, I became more alarmed. So for me, um, I think we have to get to the health professionals so that they have some power to control the what their their members are doing um there's uh, genspect which uh, um, is an organization for parents of gender questioning children it has a, a lot of resources and i was talking to a woman from that and she 
she was talking about her her daughter, who at that stage I think was late teens, um, you know, actually going to a service in Newcastle and being told that old thing, you know, well, you can either have a live daughter or a dead, a, a de- dead daughter or a live son. And, again, it comes back to the truth, you know, the, the evidence is um, that, it, that the rate of suicidality is not that much higher than any other uh, group, teenage group or kids group that have got mental health problems. And you have to separate out the suicidal ideation, you know, thinking about it, suicidal um, sort of playing a bit where they make attempts, suicides, definite attempts, and they completed suicides. Now, a recent study out of England found that the completed suicide rate of um, people on the waiting list for the gender dysphoria clinic, gender identity, gender identity clinic in London was 13 per 100,000. That's the completed suicide rate. Now, it's a little bit higher than other adolescents, but 13 per 100,000 is not enough. Um, it, it's not appropriate for that statistic to be used against all people, all parents who, who question what the health prof- professionals are doing with their children. So, again, for me, it, it, I, I think we have to, we have to get to the, the different health professionals. In Sydney, there's a clinic uh, that advertises um, that anybody over the 16, anybody over the age of 16 can now go to this clinic and they will hand out the, the um, cross-sex hormones. With, they don't need an, a mental health assessment and uh, there are ways around getting um, approval from the PBS. They can just do it off-label. So one of the issues is that, oh, you know, I'm overreacting. None of the kids start that early. We, we uh, go through a thorough assessment, but the evidence is that there are kids being put on these drugs uh, within one or two sessions. So um, I suppose like everybody involved in this, you go through stages where it's just so overwhelming, you want to stand back from it, and then something happens and you get all fired up again. So so certainly my concerns for children um, were, were part of the beginning of my um, journey into this. Uh, but then, you know, as I got more into the uh, sex-based rights for women and started, I, mean, I didn't know that um, in a lot of the legislation sex has been removed in favour of gender. I mean, people don't know that stuff. I didn't know it until the last few months. So that's alarmed me because obviously it's an issue um, for women's health, Um, the the, um, dehumanisation of the terms that are used, all of those things are damaging to women's health, women's mental health and their physical health. And um, the same thing doesn't happen with trans men going into men's spaces. There's no threat to men from trans men. So if you think about a, uh, a trans male prisoner going into a, fe- a trans, sorry, trans female prisoner going into a female prison, who's going to be at risk there compared to a trans male prisoner going into a male prison? Now, in both cases, the man going into the trans woman going into the female prison is a risk to the prisoners. In the other case, um, it's actually the prisons that are, ris- are, are a risk for the trans uh, prisoner. So, you know, we can see the gender roles playing out here uh, or the masculine, feminine sex roles playing out here. And so, you know, I think I was born stropping. I think I was born a feminist. And so <laughs> these sort of um, these sort of issues certainly get me angry. And I, I tell this story. I've, I've been married many years and we have a lovely marriage. But one of the things that I still deeply resent was back in the early 70s where I had to get my husband's permission to get a passport. So these are the things that I experienced growing up um, that certainly um, made me a difficult woman. Um, And and certainly this transgender issues have certainly reignited that. 
So it's kind of been this slow boil and then suddenly it's all boiled over for me and I'm still, you know, in the middle of working out the best way to go about dealing with both the issues for women and the issues for kids. Would you like to speak a bit more about the area uh, of activity in which you're focusing your efforts to resist gender identity ideology? And where has it taken you? Well, at the moment, it's mainly just in, um, you know, trying to, you know, open discussions of, about gender ideology. Um, I, I joined Twitter. Someone advised me to join Twitter, and my heavens, that's been an interesting thing to do. Um, and I've only been on it for a little while, um, but I find myself busily responding to to a lot of the tweets um, and, and obviously getting abused, but basically it just... Um, it just becomes so obvious that uh, what's happening with um, trans women is that it's actually male-born people still telling women what they should and shouldn't accept. And that, you know, for an old feminist like me, is enough for me to just keep trying. But I don't have any specific avenue at the moment other than going through the APS. Um, but I think um, trying to find people to talk about, talking to other women about, and one of the things that I was, you know, sort of surprised and saddened by was the number of people that has contact have contacted me since the article in the Sydney Morning Herald and also the stuff I do with the APS, how scared they all are. You know, I, I think how can we move forward as a society while people are so scared? Um, I don't quite know how to break through that, that, you know, psychologists simply won't stand up because it's, it's too much of a risk to their, and some of them are dealing with their own kids who are, uh, have joined this sort of transgender sort of phase. Um, so I, I think I'm still in that early stage of just exploring what things I can do. Um, I'd certainly like to write more, but it's not that easy as we know to get stuff into the, into the newspapers. Um, so I'm kind of open to suggestions really as to what other things I might be doing um, that would help. Um, I, I mean, certainly I know that there are some legal cases that are beginning to go through the system, um, but, you know, I don't know enough about the best way to even be involved in that, um, apart from perhaps trying to think of it from a psychologist's point of view, ways in which the legal uh, questions might, might arise. But um, that's, you know, that's way outside my area of expertise, but I'm, I'm sort of certainly coming to be more and more interested in supporting any legal actions um, that, that are coming through the system. I think that's the only way people are going to get really scared, um, you know, the people in charge are going to bring about change is when, when there's a, a real and present threat that they are going to um, have to account for their actions. But we need, you know, people like your service to let people like me know what's possible because I think, I mean, for me, honestly, um, I cannot understand how any health professional can possibly think it's okay to affirm someone in a in their stated problem without any thorough mental health problem. It is absolutely beyond my understanding. There is no other condition in mental health where someone would come in and say, I think I'm depressed or I think I'm bipolar or I think I've got PTSD. In none of those conditions would, would the psychologist then say, oh, okay, with PTSD we do this. And that's where I got into trouble with this clinical psychologist who said, you can't equate trans people with that. I'm saying, well, I can actually. Um, so I honestly struggled to understand how any health professional buys into this stuff. I was all on my own in a little country town and it became obvious to me in the practice I was in that this wasn't right. 
Um, so how did it, uh, it's just beyond me. So, so again, that's where my focus um, is looking at the, uh, the ethics of what health professionals are doing and what legal things could be done to force them to do things differently. Um, but there's still an open book, so open to all ideas. Could you tell us a bit about the opposition that you faced and how that's personally impacting you? Well, certainly, um, when I did the podcast, um, it wasn't actually going to be just about gender. It was, you know, I'd mentioned to that, you know, these were some of my concerns, but my actual area of speciality um, is uh, sexuality. And I, I do write a lot about mismatched libidos, people who have different expectations and wants and needs in, in their sex lives. So initially I thought that was going to be the main focus of it. And then we got on to the transgender issues. And, of course, once I get onto something that I'm passionate about, I just take off. <laughs> and so uh, that was really what happened in the, in the podcast. Um, and the, the attacks were, um, it, it's very hard to explain. Like some, one of my friends said to me, I've never seen you like this. You know, I, even now if I think about it, I feel a bit teary, a bit, a bit sort of fragile. Um, and what they were doing, it was a tech on who I am, on my knowledge, my clinical skills. Um, it, it went to the heart of who I am and uh, it, it was difficult. But uh, And the thing was I was all on my own. Like my family support me, of course, they, they do. But, um, and I work in a lovely practice and strangely enough, I didn't tell them about it in the early days because I knew I had to focus, I had to concentrate and they knew something was up. Um, but um, anyway, I wrote this huge tome, uh, several, uh, I did a lot of research. And um, in the end, um, when the APS delivered their, their judgment that uh, I had the right to my views, it was, it was a tremendous relief because I know from, um, from other situations that if the APS hadn't supported me, the next thing would have been to go after my registration. And, yes, I'm in my 70s, I'm, I'm going to retire, but that, that's who I am. I was one of the very few people in, back in the, in the 60s who went to university with the, the dedicated aim to become a clinical psychologist. Um, and I've done that and I've loved every moment, moment of it. So, so for this to happen at this point was very, um, it, it, was, it was very destabilising. But, you know, I mean, ultimately uh, you come through that and my, my son, is, I've got a beautiful fan, my son said to me, Mum, why do you do this? You always take on issues. This could be the hill you die on. Why have you done this? Because, you know, I do go after issues that, I'm, that I feel passionate about, but this one was very different. So, um, yeah, and, and I still feel very, very passionate about now, you know, proceeding to do something, but I, I, I really haven't found the best way, apart from what I'm muddling around with, I don't really have a clear step one, step two, step three. And, um, you know, I'll just have to see how it pans out. Um, I think after uh, after the task force gets started and I've put in my stuff, I'm going to take a bit of a break for a while and, uh, um, you know, regroup a little bit, I think. Um, but, yes, it's not a, not a pleasant thing to have gone through. What are the next steps for you? And do you have any suggestions for the attendees tonight? The next step for me will be to continue to look for ways of getting to ordinary people. You know, I think um, the more that people know, I think uh, that there was a, 
a survey that was mentioned um, by Vivian, the more people know what, what transgender ide ideology actually does, the more people, particularly women, are getting anxious and, and worried about it. So I just, at the moment, um, focus, very focused on finishing this submission to the APS task force, which is another tome. <laughs> um, and when I've finished that, I'll take a break. But after that, I still feel very strongly about um, the legal aspect. Well, the change will only happen if... if if we get some legal cases up and, and and people are made held to account. So that's there's got to be a way. I refuse to accept that there's not an angle in there somewhere. So I'll keep looking and, and probably drive Anna nuts in the meantime. I'll send all my ideas. <laughs> Vivian Morrigan lives and works on land belonging to the Wongal people of the Eora Nation located around the inner west of Sydney. She has now retired from her last full-time job as a lecturer at the University of Queensland Ipswich campus, where she was responsible for setting up and running courses on the cultural studies of science and technology within the Centre for Contemporary Studies. She first became politicised in her early 30s when she became involved in women's action against global violence, a member of the national umbrella group Women for Survival and while carrying out postgraduate work at the University of Sydney. Soon after, she was elected the first women's officer for their postgrad association. It was during this time that Vivian committed herself to a lesbian feminist identity, which she has maintained passionately and proudly ever since. She is the secretary and public officer of COAL, the Coalition of Activist Lesbians, and a member of L40, a social group for lesbians in New South Wales. She is also a contributor to a radical feminist book critiquing porn bots, sex robots, due for publication this year, and her writing has benefited from regular meetings over the past couple of years with inspiring members of the FATES, Feminist Academy of Technology and Ethics, convened by Kathleen Richardson in the UK, who leads the campaign against porn robots. I was first politicised in my early 30s when I became involved in a women's peace group at the same time, I began postgraduate work at the University of Sydney, none of which is involved with the transgender issue now. Um, at that time, I was elected secretary of the Postgrad Association, as Janet said, and a new friend I'd made in the department was elected president. She was a radical lesbian feminist who years later, I learned to my surprise, had converted to Christianity. <laughs> this happens. People's political positions change enormously over a lifetime. Soon we were able to hire a female organiser with far-left politics. We were very left-identified then. Um, the next year I was hired as the first women's officer for the Postgrad Association and we held the first National Women's Postgraduate Conference. Um, I was, in that year, my postgrad work ended when my supervisor stopped my voluntary, tried to stop my voluntary work with the Postgrad Association. I was unsuccessful in appeals to the VC mediated by the university's first women's officer, and I left my research project as my funding was tied to my supervisor, a professor whose power could not be challenged. Over those two years, I gained a valuable on-the-ground political education, which stands uh, in good stead for me today. It was also then that I committed myself to a lesbian feminist existence, which I've maintained, as I said, in, as Janet said, which I've maintained passionately and proudly since then, despite recent efforts by some lesbians I've met in online Facebook groups to cancel me because of my heterosexual past. 
I'm and as I'm and I'm currently the secretary and public officer of Coal, which is a UN accredited NGO. I'm also a contributor to a radical feminist book critiquing porn bots or sex robots due to publication this year. And my writing has benefited by regular meetings over the past couple of years with the other contributors, inspiring members of FATES, the Feminist Academy of Technology and Ethics, convened by Kathleen Richardson in the UK, who leads the campaign against porn robots. What made you first realise that transgenderism is a threat to children and women? When I joined Cole a few years ago and realised how important it is politically to resist gender ideology and politics because it represents the new men's rights movement and backlash against feminist gains in improving the position of women. In particular, gender ideology has already undermined many hard fought for rights of lesbians and other women and girls. Um, an early example was the fight that some lesbians in Adelaide had to stop men who identify as women and lesbians so other, in other words, heterosexual men, from attending a lesbian-only function. The women avoided a court conviction and a fine, but like many other lesbians under the reign of gender ideology, we've had to be very careful since then not to publicise our events. Hmm. Right now I'm keenly researching the tentacles of the lurking LGBTI forces of money and influence to expose the extent of their misinformation and underhand tactics. One recent example is the report titled Manufacturing Moral Panic, Weaponizing Children to Undermine Gender Justice and Human Rights. Oh, such a progressive kind of title, isn't it? And it was put out in the middle of last year by the Global Philanthropy Project. That organization boasts it is internationally recognized, and these are quotes, as the primary thought leader and go-to partner for donor coordination around global LGBTI work. Unquote. It is a collaboration of 22 funding organisations and it's obvious we're up against well-funded organisations skilled in strategising. Jennifer Bilek has followed gender ideology's money and influence trail in her blog called The 11th Hour and in other online articles that provide us with valuable resources. Is there an area of activity where you're focusing your efforts? Because of the COVID epidemic and my health issues, most of my activism is online and in writing. As an individual, I'm a member of many gender critical online activist groups where I'm also making valuable links with others and forming new friendships. Um, I support women here and overseas who are suffering because they've expressed gender critical views. For example, I've made small donations to their fundraisers to cover their legal costs. My, I don't have a lot of money, but I'll do what I can. My collective efforts mainly focus on the National Committee of Coal, where I contribute to writing submissions and reports. Coal is critical of gender ideology, especially as it affects lesbians of all ages. And we're currently re-establishing a web page where we hope to communicate more widely to lesbians and about lesbians' concerns and ideas for fighting back against gender ideology. Gender ideologues have realized that gender critical arguments about child protection and injustices in women's sports, particularly, are winning over majority opinion. And the MMP report from last year demonstrates this. <laughs> in fact, it invents a new term called gender restrictive groups 
as an alternative to turf. And I've seen some groups already using it. The MMP report, like the similarly deceptive Jog Jakarta principles, is designed to confuse and obfuscate in order to set a gender agenda. The report uses discourse capture, even in the very subtitle, twisting gender critical discourse into an attack on our concerns about young girls, many of whom are lesbians and being induced to turn body hatred originating from patriarchal social conditions into gender dysphoria, and then offering them so-called solutions of seeking medical professions, professionals to mutilate their bodies and prescribe them hormones for the rest of their lives. These are morally repugnant effects uh, of gender ideology, but our concerns are hardly a moral panic, as the report says, which implies illogical and unreasonable reactions. The MMP report attacks the term gender ideology that admittedly has been mobilised by conservative, faith-based and authoritarian forces, um, but gender-critical feminists have, perhaps unfortunately, adopted the term, although it has certainly helped us to form coalitions with other such groups. The report largely provides an in-depth description and analysis of groups like ourselves and our tactics who oppose gender ideology. So it's interesting to read our enemies' thought processes. It also discusses three case studies in Peru, Bulgaria and Ghana. Perhaps this is to prove its social justice credentials, despite being based and funded in the West. There's an attack on the Declaration of Women's Rights. Uh, sorry, yeah, on the Declaration of Women's Rights as the product of, quote, turfs. So suddenly they can use the term turfs, who have, quote, co-opted the language of human rights and specifically women's rights, portraying it as, quote, a weapon against gender justice and particularly trans and non-binary people's rights. All this progressivist language that they've borrowed from people like us. In this war of words for heart and minds, we need more female-centred, clever strategies that don't depend on pots of money and male power and influence. Can you tell us a little bit about the opposition you're facing and how this is impacting you? I haven't suffered much personally for expressing my gender-critical views publicly. Because of my age and having no concerns about a career path anymore, I'm open about my views. However, my two nieces in their early 20s have both disagreed with me and become quite upset, in tears even, but thankfully still communicate with me. I think they may have unfriended me or just don't read my Facebook posts, or however. I work one day a week teaching English online to international students and have had a small amount of input into an organisational committee that aims to empower women. Apart from dealing with the fraught politics of pronouns, my recent concern was to ensure that a new policy on menopause support included the keywords sex and women, which had been completely excluded. Um, the main visible expression of my opposition against Cole's political efforts has been mainly one that I have experienced, has been mainly one of disregard by our opponents. We need to step up our lobbying efforts, clearly. 
um, which of course require a lot of energy um, that many of our aging second wave feminist members find demanding. Our webpage presence, however, has the potential to increase opposition to us, but at the same time, I'm hopeful, it will also make more connections with lesbians who will be helped by us and will work with us to fight back against gender ideology and, the and improve the lives of lesbians. What are the next steps for you and Cole? Do you have any suggestions for attendees? Um, my and Cole's next steps, besides continuing to respond to unexpected metaphorical bombs thrown at lesbians by gender activists, are to support the contemporary surge in interest in lesbian feminist principles and action. I will continue to work with the Cole webpage committee to support our blog page, as well as to help develop many of our other pages that are coming. Cole will hold another event at the UN Women's CSW Online NGO Forum. God, the UN goes in for these big long names. <laughs> and that's going to be held in the second half of March this year. Last year, we networked with WDI, which was then known as WHRC, whose forum event there featured women from across the globe sharing their evidence of the harms that gender identity ideology had caused in their countries. However, their exhibit booth and handbook advertising the WHRC were removed from the platform because of alleged offensive comments that were definitely not made. In addition, some WHRC women were removed from a CSW event where participants were promised an opportunity to, quote, speak up and amplify our voices from all corners of the world. Well, their voices certainly weren't amplified. There was only one other specifically lesbian-identified group participating in last year's CSW. I went through the whole program. There were, however, LGBTQI events, which I didn't find out about until later for some reason. It was my first experience at the CSW forum. It probably would have been political suicide anyway to participate in them, as that might have threatened the success of the Coles, of Coles event. One of these other LBTQI alphabet soup events was called, quote, an agenda for inclusion and realization, voices of marginalized communities that was sponsored by some LGBTQI groups, which included ILGA, a pernicious group that is heavily active with the UN Human Rights Council and is currently promoting a so-called feminist declaration to compete with the Women's Declaration. UN Women has become a dangerous forum for women where gender ideology has taken a stronghold that must be broken. Cole would very much like to increase our input into improving the lives of lesbians and expanding our membership to be more inclusive. I would encourage any Australian lesbians watching and listening tonight to apply to become a member. The proviso is that you have gender critical views. Simply email us at coalitionofactivistlesbians at gmail.com to ask for an application form. Membership rates are very reasonable, a sliding scale from five to $25. And you'll need to provide the name of a proposer who is known to Cole um, already. We've had, we have heard of efforts by LGBTQ activists 
to infiltrate our group. I heard an allegation just the other day. And we are careful to protect our organisation and our membership from the unethical and bullying tactics of those pushing gender ideology. <laughs>